0: Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them. Or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books. To the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks, to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels.
1: Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten
2: films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age.
1: You know, one person's trash is another's treasure something like that.
2: Each episode hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically.
1: We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast.
2: You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. This is John Leeson,
1: and I play K-9 on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast.
2: Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. (laughs)
0: Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the experimental task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt and today we have a sometimes experimental three-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we have a fan who's far more experimental than I am, the tantalizing Trey Corté. Hello, Trey. Hi. If you like what you're hearing please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash TargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you keep them locked up along with your test subjects in the torture chamber. Just to say thank you for being (laughs) willing to help us stay on the virtual air. I know that was a long walk for a short drink of water, but damn, I needed that drink of water. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Weck, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, and Dave Davis. <gasps> thank you all. Thanks, y'all. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of the first season of the Tom Baker era with Ian Martyr's novelization of The Sontaran Experiment. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Sontaran Experiment, adapted by Ian Martyr from the script by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, but aired from 222.75 to 3.175, published by Target Books in December 1978. As of this recording in September 2020, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unreached audiobook, 127 pages. This story is the result of an experiment of its own on the part of script editor Robert Holmes. Rather than go the Pertwee-era route of having a season composed entirely of four and six-part stories, he decided to avoid the padding and instead do the first two-parter since The Rescue, which, as it turned out, Ian Martyr would also novelize. It would also be the last one until 1982's Black Orchid, after which there are only two more in the entire run of the series. To allow for budgeting, the four-parter would be done in the studio, while the two-parter would be done all on location. Unlike any of those stories, though, in fact, unlike any other story in the entire series, this one would be entirely on location with no interiors. The same director, Rodney Bennett, would do both as well. And as a further cost-cutting measure, even though Holmes didn't care much for returning monsters, which is ironic because the first season he script edits has three of them, (laughs) He decided to bring back his own creation, the Santaran, since they already had the costume of the ship. That's literally it. That's why they decided to do it, so they wouldn't have to make new costumes. Bob Baker and Dave Martin were brought in to do the story, and it was their idea to have the actors cast as the Galset crew be South African, as they were interested in linguistic shift and how it would affect language in the future, which we will see again, though maybe not on the printed page, in The Invisible Enemy. One of those actors, Glenn Jones, was the only actor who also wrote for the series. He'd written The Space Museum, the first episode of which we remember fondly, and the rest not so fondly. (laughs) A few things didn't go as planned, and that's understating it. The writers were unhappy when Holmes renamed their story from The Destructors to The Sontaran Experiment as it ruined their one cliffhanger. They were also disappointed when their original plan to have a Planet of the Apes-style reveal that the TARDIS team were in London the whole time ended up just being a pair of lines about the Doctor joking that they were in London. The location work was done using the new outside broadcast equipment, so it used video, and so CSO could not be used, meaning that the Scavenger had to be a practical prop. And it's not considered a very successful one, even though I love it to pieces. (laughs) Tom Baker slipped and fell while filming The Confrontation with Steyer and cracked his collarbone meaning he had to wear a sling concealed under his coat. And in fact, that's why he's posing so strangely on the cover of this book. They took it from one of the shots that they photographed after he got the sling. Mm. And although this probably wasn't the fault of the show, the actor Kevin Lindsay, who'd played Lynx in The Time Warrior and Cho in Planet of the Spiders, had a heart condition and died six months after this was made. Yeah, the costume was not very comfortable for him and caused him to overheat quite a bit and... Mm. It wasn't a good time. Martyr does the same thing here that he would later do with the rescue, which is essentially expanding and rewriting the story to paper over the plot holes and to give it more weight. He also fixes an earlier continuity error, since the crew did not come down in the TARDIS and won't have it in the next story, and so he gets rid of it in the first chapter. So, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm, Who's gonna... I guess
2: it's my turn. <laughs> I
0: think it might be.
2: Landing on Earth, now a barren, desolate planet. Sarah, Harry, and the Doctor are unaware of the large watching robot. The robot is the work of Steyr, a Santarn warrior who uses all humans landing here for his experimental programs. What has happened to the other space explorers who have come here? Why is the Santarn scout so interested in Earth and in brutally torturing humans? Including Sarah Jane. Will the doctor be able to prevent an invasion and certain disaster and save both Earth and his companions?
0: Well, will he?
2: (laughs) I I believe he will. Yeah. Just as a, a little aside, um yesterday I placed an order. I, I ordered a bunch of Doctor Who toys, including the Santarn Experiment set oh. that has styre links and the first Harry Sullivan action
0: figure. Oh, that's so, lovely.
2: Um, nice. Very excited about Yay. that. Hey,
0: Ian Martyr finally gets an action figure. It's about fucking time. Ah so Dalton? You're the only person here I can really ask <laughs> what your first impression of this was.
1: Well, in the past, the Santarans have been uh, allies with us, correct? No. No? No. Wasn't there a story where there was one that was... I- I'm confusing uh, species, aren't I? I? Ice Warriors, I
2: think you're thinking of. You are thinking of. Of. I'm thinking Ice of Warriors. the
1: Ice Warriors, okay. And I'm probably thinking of... There's a Santaran in the new series that is... Yes, Yes. it's on our side. That's what I keep thinking of. That's what my brain keeps going back to.
2: Greetings, puny humans. In advance of the anniversary movie, the doctor has entrusted me with briefing you on cinema etiquette, a wise choice. I have invited my clone batch to this screening. As you can see, we Sontarans are capable of exemplary levels of rapt attention. We have been drilled in basic concentration as long as any of us can remember. About a week, in fact. But it has become very clear to me that your feeble human minds are not so disciplined.
1: With that in mind, I was looking forward to seeing them as an enemy. I know that they're a warlike race. They're they're known to be pretty uh, tough to beat with their, their neck vent being their only uh, weakness. So, uh, yeah, I was excited to kind of see where this was going to go. Interested in what kind of experiments he was going to do. I kind of had this picture in my head of... Him with a lab, but that didn't seem quite right. So uh, yeah, just kind of uh, what? What? Yeah, wondering what kind of experiments he could be doing on these humans. I'm just, I love it because he's <laughs> in a lab, but he does have a slab.
0: Oh, he does. Oh. <laughs> he, does. <laughs> he does, but oh, I, I just can't forgive you for that one. Oh Lord, but I am going to ask you. <laughs> what your first impression was way back when you either saw the story first or when you finally read the book.
2: Okay, so those are two different things. The story was one I loved, and it was one that I re-watched often. Mm. I don't really know why. I think it's because it's a rather. it was a story that was simple to understand. Being a two-parter, it was one that kept my child's attention. I could watch it in one sitting. Yeah, mm. And I think where they filmed it, which is very different from how it's described in the book, but it had that sort of dry sort of grassland look that looked very similar to Northern California where, because I was living in San Francisco at the time. And that's where often like we would go camping and so forth. So it kind of looked like that scrub land, like in Marin County, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. it reminded me of that. So, you know, that's, it felt familiar. So like when I would be at the barn mucking out stalls, like that could be one of the, while my mom was doing stuff with the horses, I could be off in the Marin Headlands playing Doctor Who, and it kind of felt like that location, so I do have that memory. Hmm. The book was one that I got in middle school. It's another one of the ones I think I mentioned in a previous podcast where I have these, like, stamps on it, where I got them at the used bookstore. <laughs> yes. And I remember this was one of the ones that I read that, as in my reading development, it was one of the ones that really... Because I knew the story so well, it was one of the ones I distinctly remember it being different from what was on the screen. And as a child, that annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> but now as an adult, I like it. Because I felt like Ian Marder got it wrong. That it, it seemed like in my child's mind that he had made a mistake. Mm. That he was being inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And then once, you know, what part in Piaget's cognitive development but at some point I began to like, oh no, this is actually really cooler than what's on screen and what he, some of the changes that he makes, so I don't know if that makes sense, it does. but it does. Yeah. Um, I do remember feeling frustrated with the book because it got it wrong, mm-hmm. but then later in, in one of my rereads, coming to appreciate it and enjoy it
0: Yeah, I have, you had essentially the same reaction I had when I first read Doomsday Weapon, I was like mm-hmm. what's Joe doing there now. And of course, when I read Unearthly Child, not knowing that David Whitaker had essentially rewritten the start of the series, I was like, the hell? But those are amongst my favorite books now. And well, this isn't one of my favorites, but it, it's, it's getting up there. So where do we start with this one? Because it is definitely different than the televised version. Almost a completely different story in many ways.
1: Well, I immediately have the very first paragraph highlighted because that's kind of the world that I'm living in right now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I was thinking of that.
1: Just I I started reading that and I was like, damn. When I looked out the window, I was like, that's that's where I'm at right now, under this oppressive yellow cloudy sky. It's weird. I think it totally got the feel of that kind of irradiated dead planet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course on screen it's not that at all.
2: No, it looks like it looks like Northern California. Right, exactly.
0: Still. In fact, I'm trying to remember where they filmed it.
2: Dorset was it, or Dorset. I
0: don't know. It was Dorset, you yeah. know, which is lovely green rolling hills. And there's no way it could possibly be London, even several thousand years hence. So those lines of the Doctor are obviously silly.
1: Yeah,
0: and end up being silly here too. But there you go. <laughs> that intro immediately tells you it's not going to be the same thing at all. What else struck you? What else should we talk about here? Because there actually is quite a bit to talk about here, given that it's a novelization of a two-parter.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised to hear that it was only two parts. It felt like there was enough going on. that I don't know. Some of the other stories we've read, there's a lot of back and forth that was longer episodes, you know, four episodes. So I felt like this could have been longer on the screen mm-hmm. i i disagree with you a bit
2: tony unlike the rescue i don't think it's a radically different story mm-hmm. okay i think it's almost the same script but just with a budget
0: well that's true
2: there's sequences like Harry going within the Centauran ship and the depths of it and discovering all that. He still goes through the Centauran ship. It's just he just kind of goes into the small ship, grabs a thing and comes out. So there, those are some additions. But I think in terms of the overall structure, the character motivations, um, some of the plot holes are papered over. But I think it's, it's just a much more epically visualized version of the television story. But I don't think it's to me. It, it doesn't seem like a doomsday weapon or an, uh, the Daleks, or or even with some of the other ones where it seems radically reworked in any way. Mm. It just seems more like a remix than a retelling, okay. if that makes sense. That that's just how I perceive it.
0: I think the only reason I'm thinking that is because. The Arc and Space felt so completely different. And they are different compared to what Terence Dix would have done with this.
2: Oh, absolutely. I guess maybe that raises a point of when we're talking about the category of novelizations that do deviate from the televised version. Do they deviate from the story and the structure, Doomsday Weapon being an obvious choice, or do they deviate in simply how it's told, where they can realize the visual intent when they're not limited by the budget. And to me, that almost seems like two different categories of the book is different.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. And I think Martyr probably fits into the second category most yes. of the time, mm. because yes. even the early Hartnell book that he did before The Rescue.
2: Reign of Terror. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that really does feel like a different story and on a much bigger budget, but also in its reimagining of what the Doctor and Susan are like at that point. He doesn't think of them as just, you know, time travelers that happen to be alien, but they might as well be human in the way that they were treated then. And more like, this is what the Doctor and Susan are by the late 80s. And Mm. he's not quite there yet. I mean, this is only his second book, but he is still willing much more than just about any other writer on the series, except for Balcom Hulk, to go outside the strictures of the story that he's been given and say, you know what? We don't have to have budget restraints. We don't have to be shooting this on Shittio. <laughs> we could really make this a thing. We could make this less a way of marking time between the arc and space, and Genesis of the Daleks, and you have to admit, those two stories are fairly big bookends for this one. It can be a big story on its own, and it does become that, and I I think that's what I was meaning to say. Not so much that it's a completely different story, but that it's actually a story.
2: He makes it feel important.
0: Yes, that's it. That's it. That's it. Because this doesn't feel like a lesser adventure. This feels like an adventure. And I really want to get Dalton's take on it, because don't, and I assume you haven't watched the episodes yet. Well, you said you didn't know it was a two-parter, so...
1: No. I started watching the first one after I read it, and I got about ten minutes in and said don't finish watching this until after the podcast so that you don't confuse yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Because... I would mix up details and I would conflate the two. Having seen some of the classic episodes and seen the way like you're saying that Ian Martyr has a way of amplifying the action and kind of like bringing in so much more detail, I feel like specifically the the scene with Sarah being tortured, he has so much more description and so much more in there that really kind of makes that so much more terrifying and absolutely horrible and I still don't know how she recovered from that so quickly oh god that's, <laughs> that's true. true but just the way that that scene in and of itself is is described yeah I don't see how that would have been portrayed on screen effectively so the fact that Ian is able to really like get us inside that torture chamber and describing her flesh melting off yeah. like, what the what I I don't think that that's anything that would have been viable to show one because of of just the technical aspects but two just the the horrific nature of it
0: Mm mhm yeah,
1: that would not be on TV. I know uh, last time you guys were talking about bubble wrap. <laughs> yes. For, you know, a practical effect. And I did go back and finish watching that story. And yeah, it, you'd suspend your belief to become part of that world. But I don't know, in the 21st century, we've, we've gotten so used to CGI and where prosthetics have come to that. Yeah, see, seeing something that's like a lower level practical effect, it's, it's still a little hard to make yourself believe.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you're right about him playing up the horror aspect because while the story on screen isn't absolutely pleasant, it's still torture done by way of the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> and it's on a lower scale and on a budget and all of that. And Sarah's torture scene is nothing like this. And for those who haven't read the book yet, I'm going to spoil this for you. Martyr turns that scene that we're all visualizing in our head right now into this pages-long horror show (laughs) in which Sarah is pummeled by every single subconscious and conscious fear she's ever had. And it's just a, a nightmare. And then he does the same thing to Harry when Harry comes to rescue her. And it's brilliant. It's just marvelous. I did not know that that was going to be in there and there were so many things in this book that I didn't know were going to be there and they were always, almost always pleasant surprises. There are a couple things I didn't like. Speaking of Sarah I think if Allison were with us on this episode she would probably have to point out that Sarah again is being tortured because she is the female companion. In this case it's deliberately so because that's what Steyer says. You're the female. You're different. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you're new. I haven't played with you yet.
0: Exactly. And we don't get that same reaction to the torture that we got to Sarah's climbing through the pipes last time. That earned feeling that, oh, she's fainted, but she has good reason to faint. Or, oh, she's crying, but she has good reason to cry. Here, you're right. She she snaps out of it pretty quickly.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, and and I think, too, it's not, even though she's screaming and in pain and and obviously terrified, the experiment itself is meant to activate the fear. So it's not, so even though she, in a way, and this kind of goes to the original script, but I think it's clever because it's a way of, kind of having your cake and eating it too they can have the damsel be in distress and be tortured and have horrible things happen to her but it's also in a way that doesn't make her weak and helpless true, mm-hmm. true, because of the nature of it, so the same thing would have happened to a man, you know, his fear, and we see it happen with Harry, so is it a bit misogynistic? Arguably yes, but I think because Sarah recovers then in the first half, she stands up to stire. she is the one who's pretty much trying to rescue Harry and the Doctor. She befriends Roth. She finds a sonic screwdriver. She gets the Doctor out of his bonds. So she's being independent and doing all the things. And then she gets caught, and it's very James Bond. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. You know, <laughs> The villain torturing the hero is not unknown in this genre. True. So I think it kind of goes to the territory of being an action heroine in this case, and her recovery is, is remarkable. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. He also goes out of his way to make an already plucky character much pluckier. I hate using that word, but there you go because she stands up to Styre, which, strangely enough, is spelled without the E. I don't know why Ian Martyr just doesn't like spellings, but he doesn't. He seems to actively go against them. But she stands up to Styre and is trying to appear fearless, even though she is quite fearful, because she, she remembers Lynx, and she remembers how bad that was.
1: <laughs> Lynx, the can't be. You were destroyed in the 13th century. You were blown to smithereens.
0: You may have seen one of us.
1: But you're identical. The same
0: ugly... Identical, yes. The same, no. I am Steyr, Field Major Styr, as you would address me, of the Santaran G3 Military Assessment Survey. And your opinion of my looks is of no interest to my program. But she's much braver on the page than she appears to be on screen. And then, this, this actually made me laugh out loud, she essentially lets the Gaussic astronauts, from, releases them from their bonds when they're putting the bar over Varl's chest. And somewhere in there, she manages to introduce herself to them because when we go back to them and they're comforting her, over the Doctor's death, which is also a new addition, they know her name and they actually call her Sarah Jane.
2: (laughs) And you get this weird possibility, well, the Doctor and Harry are gone, I'm gonna have to be with these two guys, Mm -hmm. which is a parallel spin-off series, which could be fascinating (laughs) in its own
1: regard.
2: You know, Sarah and the Spaceman, you know?
0: (laughs) Oh God. Well, maybe Big Finish should do Sarah Jane Unbound. (laughs) <laughs> and now that, uh, oh, gosh. now that her daughter is uh, playing the part, they <laughs> might be able to do something with that. There are plenty of tales not told that could be told that way. What else stands out to us? We've got a very strong Sarah on the page, obviously.
2: Harry comes across well. Yeah. yeah. And again, Ian Martyr's like, his muscular shoulders were too wide to get through the gap. <laughs> and I was like, oh, bless. Oh, no. you know? <laughs> there's...
0: No, everyone in this book is idealized versions of themselves, aren't they?
2: Yeah. I thought what was interesting to me with, with Harry was just the insight that he made this connection to the Gollum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and, and this is, I don't know if this is the English teacher trying to read too much into things, but the Gollum is a Jewish myth, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And then you have a story of a militaristic monster experimenting on humans. Oh. And it seemed like there's almost moving towards, is this a Holocaust commentary, but maybe just not going there? Or is that just me making that association between the two? It seemed like he was going to go somewhere with this golem metaphor, and then it just, it kind of doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, it
0: turned into but, Humpty Dumpty. Yeah,
2: But it does, it does seem to be in a story where this conqueror is doing these sadistic and cruel experiments on humans to see their weaknesses, and then... He's described as a creature from Jewish folklore. I don't know if that's just coincidental. I don't know if there was a purpose there, but it, I, I, I made that connection. So,
0: well, that would work, except that the golem in Jewish mythology, if I remember correctly, is a defender
2: yeah, of the oppressed. That's what I was wondering too. And
0: yeah, and it's kind of odd that he uses that image. It makes more sense to call him Humpty Dumpty, to be honest. <laughs> but there is that feeling that maybe he was going for something but didn't quite hit it, which you could actually say about certain other parts of this book too. There there are some significant misses in a way that there weren't in the previous book, but maybe that's just me. What did we like the most about this book?
2: I liked the description of the setting. You know, what Dalton was saying about the red skies and the sense of these caverns that Harry's going through and then the depths of the Centauran spaceship I really liked how it rewrote the visuals in I think a very post-apocalyptic way mm-hmm. and I really, really appreciated that.
0: Yeah, he's kind of turned this story into one that could be made in the new series. Mm-hmm. This would easily fit into a 50 minute slot even with all of the plot flourishes that he's added to it and there are quite a few uh, Dalton, what about you?
1: Same thing as Traya. The, the environment is uh, is a big part of it for me. I highlighted like three different times that Ian Martyr describes the Doctor's scarf blowing in the wind, kind of elegantly and like a like a superhero almost. Every time it's kind of when he's standing uh, on a rock overlooking Styre, or just at the beginning when he's kind of observing. The scene, just the way that he's kind of described as this figure of hope for the people, even though they don't even know what's going on there right away. But we know from the last book that he's at least here to get Vyra and the people from the Ark down. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just the idea of the scarf again playing like a big part in characterizing the Doctor.
2: He
0: makes it so much more a tool than even the sonic screwdriver at times that <laughs> I, I am looking for actively looking forward to the, the reboss operation because I'm wondering if he does the same thing with the scarf yeah. in that book.
1: I remember in the last book, he mentions that the scarf gets torn in half. And he brings that back in here and talks about how the scarf was tied back together mm-hmm. in the middle. So just, I don't I don't know, like, it's just, it's, it's interesting to me, using the scarf. Something that a lot of us that aren't so familiar with this era of the Doctor, you know, the Fourth Doctor, I still know the scarf is such a big part of him. And mm-hmm. so Ian Martyr seems to be playing that up even more.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that he is making all these little references continuity references to his previous book Mm -hmm. as if to say oh you don't get this you need to go buy the other one but he also and i i just realized that the thing that strikes me the most about this book from the beginning is that it does not assume that this is your first doctor who book it does not assume that you haven't read the others it doesn't assume you didn't read the previous story yeah because it does give us introductions to the characters but They're very slight introductions compared to Terrence Dick's stock character descriptions of the Doctor and Sarah, and he'll do one of Harry for at least two books.
2: Well, they keep referencing virus people as if the reader knows who virus people are. Yes. Exactly. And even just a paragraph that would explain they why they had come down there, There's it, it wouldn't have taken much. Yeah, but he doesn't and, have time for
0: that.
1: Mm-mm. Ain't nobody got time for that.
2: Well, he would if just half the times he talked about black froth or okay. whatever. <laughs> <you know.
0: laughs> well, we're going to save that for the things we don't like because, Jesus, this book gets a little too oozy at times, let's say.
2: Well, and I, I think that as I was reading it, I think this is the thing with description, and, and I... I Struggle with this with some of my students. That when does the good, evocative, descriptive prose cross the threshold and become purple prose? Mm -hmm. And with my students, I used to show them the infamous clip of Mommy Dearest and the wire hanger. Yeah, no wire
1: hangers. What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever?
2: And most of them haven't seen it, and some of them would start chuckling nervously, or they'd get upset. And nowadays, I wouldn't show it because just because. But and, it re- and that scene is really good, where you have very serious subject matter that's not funny, but it's overwritten in such or overproduced and overacted in such a way that it becomes unintentionally funny. Mm-hmm. And then I tell the students, and this is a lot like some of your writing. <laughs> and and it usually would happen with like my honor students and my advanced students who they wanted to show off their vocabulary. They wanted to show how clever they were and how they could describe everything in such detail and they'd repeat the same vocabulary word and what I would start doing is I would literally put like a little wire hanger in the margin. <laughs> And that was a signal that we're, we're getting there. And by the end of the course they when they were doing parents, like I'd hear them say things like, it's getting a bit wire hangry here. <laughs> <again."> oh, <gosh. laughs> Which, you know, I am proud that that might be part of my legacy. Um, but there were times where and this is where I think it's a, if a student had handed this prose into me, I think there would have been moments where I would have said too much. Stop trying to. It's like fetch and mean girls. That is so fetch. Gretchen. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Stop trying to make black oily froth happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Once or twice, you know, when we get that, his, the black oily frothy breath, it's, it's a good gross visited description. But after the half dozenth time I've read it, I'm like, okay, calm down, Ian. You don't need to do that anymore. Mm. But I think you don't want it too plain and boring. And there is such great description at times. But then it seems at times it did cross that line. And I'm not sure where that line is. And I'm sure it's different for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, Tony, I guess, like as another writing teacher, did you did you feel that at any moments or
0: occasionally? Yes, (sighs) mainly because I can be something of a connoisseur of purple prose at times. But it seems every once in a while to be excessive. And I hate using that word because that assumes that that line is so rigid that you can't cross it. And he does exactly. cross it quite a bit. But then I'm taken by things like... The fact that he assumes the reader has read the previous book so much that he makes a reference to Sarah being nervous about the transmet circle because of her recent experiences. Mm -hmm. And you think, wait, what experiences? You'd only know that if you read his book or if you read the previous book. So that sort of thing leavens it to a certain degree. That being said, I think you're absolutely right. There are a couple places where I'm just like, oh.
2: But in other places, I would really like it, and it could happen on the same page. And I I think that's where we get into the Oscar Wilde line about it is the spectator, not the artist, that art mirrors. For me, it's too much. That that might say something more about me and my own taste and how many black, oily, frothy breaths I can handle (laughs) rather than...
0: Well, those oily, (laughs) frothy breaths do make their way into a later Doctor Who book. (laughs) In at least one. So Ian Martyr has that legacy that uh, I believe it was David McEntee, if I'm not mistaken, who wrote a book that described the Sontarans as having that oily breath. And it was remarked in no less than Doctor Who magazine. Let me see if I can find a bit with prose that kind of goes a little over the top. It's usually going to be one of his descriptions of the, of the Sontaran. You're right.
2: Or like the leathery flapping. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god, yeah. <laughs> that was one that that was another go-to. Repeatedly, that happened off, yeah. repeatedly,
0: <laughs> to the point that you think it's something else. Just as Sarah thinks it's something else, and then when you find out what it is, you're like, "What?"
2: Yeah, it is a nice bit of misdirection. Mm-hmm. I like that. So I, I feel like I'm being overly critical because I do enjoy this novelization. But there were there were just some moments there, you know, in terms of writing style and and this is kind of what I do I I naturally hyper focus on that sort of thing
0: I am still looking for something that struck me as particularly egregious to use a word that Ian Martyr probably would use uh I'm not finding one but if if you know of one or Dalton if there was a spot that you thought was kind of like oh now there is the section in Chapter 3 that Elizabeth Slayton actually reads on one of the DVD extras. It's the uh, Ian Mortar tribute, as a matter of fact, on the uh, Tom Baker Blu-ray set.
1: All at once, the gaping oval panel was filled by a squat, lumbering shape like a monstrous puppet. Its domed reptilian head grew necklace out of massive, hunched shoulders. Each trunk-like arm ended in three sheathed talons and was raised in anticipation towards her. The creature began to lurch down the ramp on thick, stumpy legs. The rubbery folds of its body vibrating with each step. Mean eyes burned like two red-hot coals amid the gnarled, tortoise-like features and puffs of oily vapour issued from the flared nostrils. As it approached her, the creature uttered a raucous gasp of satisfaction.
0: Okay, maybe it's just cold? (laughs) <laughs> Maybe you can see his breath because it's cold. But no, it's not quite that. I think that I probably am not noticing it nearly as much because I'm just so happy not to be reading a Terrence sticks book. And I know <laughs> yes. there are going to be people out there that say, oh, he's going after Terrence sticks again. And it's like, well, fuck you because you don't have to read as many of them as I do. And I will have read several of them by the time we get through with this. In fact, I will have read almost all of them. And you get to a point Point where that sort of prose, that level of prose, gets very samey. So anytime you do have something that is willing to push beyond those boundaries, even just the slightest bit, it doesn't have to be Donald Cotton. It doesn't have to be those levels of pushing the boundary to the point where you actually do get a completely different story than you had on the screen. But it makes for a nice change of pace, let's say that, to the point that I'm willing to forgive quite a few things. But not all things. I'm trying to think what it was that I had some trouble with. Oh yeah, let's see, the Galsec astronauts call Sarah quite a girl. At one point she's described as an innocent girl, and I think that's by Harry. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, okay, and we get several instances of my dear, and my dear Sarah, and we're back in third doctor territory, and... Yeah, we're far enough past that, you'd think we'd be past that by now too.
1: Well, and there's the repeated use of an old thing.
0: Yeah, which only gets one appearance on screen, if I remember correctly, and that's the first episode, and it doesn't come up again.
1: Yeah, but it's he says it all throughout this book.
0: Yeah, it's he tries to make it into... It, yeah, he tries to make Fetch a thing. In other words, right. he's trying to make that a <laughs> recurrent joke, and... It's fine, though it got me to the point where when Harry rescues her, or thinks he's rescued her, and he thinks he's being attacked by a wild feral, Sarah, Mm -hmm. and he says something along the lines of, it's just me, old thing, I half expected her to say, I told you not to call me old thing, and start attacking him. (laughs) And luckily he doesn't go that far with it, but I would have appreciated it more if he had.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) But I will say this, I noted that it was eight pages, eight pages into the book before we actually got the names of the companions, before we got name checks for Sarah, Jane and Harry. So it's very much not a Terrence Dicks book in that regard.
2: Yeah. I think it's interesting that we are discussing so much of the writing and the prose style, and that's A, because of Ian Martyr and he he does have that distinctive style. But I think it also speaks to, I find it hard to talk about the story itself, because I don't think there's much to the story. I think it's a pleasant story. Well, it's not pleasant like, oh, idyllic or anything. It's a, It's a very unpleasant story. But it's an entertaining story. It serves its purpose. But in terms of larger themes or insights it's basically doctor who does torture porn yeah Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like saw or one of these other sort of horror movies that are more popular now where it's just the bad guys coming up with inventive ways to make humans suffer and there's a bit of a pretext for it with the invasion subplot and then some people find a way to defeat him. Mm. And after other people have died horribly. So I find it's a story that you, you have to struggle to find some thematic depth. And I do think there are hints of it there. I remember one, one line that struck me a lot as a kid. And again, I wish a martyr had done more with it is when Kranz and Iraq are trying to keep the bar from crushing Verl. Yeah. And Steyer's taunting him, and he says, this man betrayed you. Why would you even try to exert energy and in- saving his life. And that actually had a bit of a profound impact on me as a kid watching this. There's just some lines you don't cross even with your enemies yeah. or the people who've done you wrong. And that it was the monster who mm-hmm. would basically encourage you to do revenge. And that little bit there, it it really had an impact. Verl even then gets like a little bit of a redemption art. But maybe instead of trying to go off with some of the description, that would have been maybe an interesting way to flesh the story out. A little bit more about the Galsic colonists and their dynamics and, and what happened. I think they're a lost opportunity if you want to flush the story out.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd agree. There, yeah. Dalton, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, I was looking through my highlights and yeah, something that would have flushed them out a little bit more, and they only briefly touch on it, when the doctor is first kind of talking to them, he talks about uh, the Terra Nova, and they say the Terra Nova doesn't exist. It's a lost colony. It's a good story that mothers tell their children. So the idea that they don't even believe that the Ark is there to come back to Earth.
0: Exactly. And that, that's a really fascinating thing to go with, because I believe there's a line that's missing from this novelization where Viril says something along the lines of, while you were all asleep, we built an empire. Oh, well, sir! if you are one of the old people, we are not taking any orders from your lot. While you were dozing away, our people kept going, and they made it. We've got bases all across the galaxy now. You've done nothing for 10,000 years while we made an empire! You understand? Oh, absolutely.
2: There, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's gone
0: from this version. And I really wish they he had done more with it because when he establishes the new stuff, the reason why the Santarans are there, why they would come to a desolated earth to conduct this experiment, it turns out that he's lured them there. It's all preparatory to an invasion so that they can get their hands on this Terulean, and talk about MacGuffins. We need to talk about the Terulean. (laughs) Good God. And people in the new series think that the sonic screwdriver is overused. (laughs) Yeah, all that's new, but he doesn't really go with it too terribly much.
2: I'm sorry, Tony. It It sounds like one of those really pious... Buzzfeed articles or something. It's time we had a conversation about (laughs) (laughs) Trillian.
0: You know the sort that
2: I'm talking
1: about? (laughs) It's just the way you phrase that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: Well, far be it for me to sound like BuzzFeed. God, that sounds terrible. But, yeah, it does have that overused thing.
2: It's like, now I'm imagining a montage of the Dr. Sarah and Harry and the Galsic things. One of those formulaic things where they just cut different celebrities. I was like, it's time, time, time (laughs) to talk, to talk, to talk about Terulean. Right. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but the thing is, as much as I may complain about those editions, those are also the things I like most about Ian Martyr's books. I mean, The Rescue is probably one of my favorite Hartnell novelizations.
2: Oh, I love The Rescue.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And it's got a fucking Thomas Dolby Blinded Me with Science reference in it. (laughs) And I adore that to pieces, that he's quoting mid-80s pop music in a Doctor Who novel in a story that would never have had it. And that's just lovely. And he kind of does that sort of thing here, and every once in a while it works, and other times it really doesn't, like the sawing the lady in half thing that he says that the whole thing with Verl looks like, and that weird reference to the liquid crystal instant recall diary it's like mm-hmm. oh god for one thing what show are you in the doctor doesn't carry that sort of thing that's more a um star trek thing or a Farscape thing something techie and he doesn't really do techie except for the song screwdriver yeah i'm i'm not enjoying this book nearly as much as the last one for exactly the same reasons that I enjoyed the last one so much, if that makes sense. The, what he gets right, he gets right. What he gets wrong, mm. and what he takes out, I just wish he hadn't taken it
2: out. What do you guys think of the climax of the story with the giant stire?
1: Dalton, what do you think of that? <laughs> I thought it was a little silly, the idea that somehow he's just tripling, quadrupling in size and just becoming huge and then just deflates. I don't know, trying to wrap my head around why that would happen and how Harry would make that happen, it just just seemed a little confusing to me. Yeah, it seemed, it seemed anticlimactic in a way. Kind of just... Deflated, <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of
0: how he dies on screen
2: actually well yeah and that's what i'm wondering i'm wondering if it was an original script where that happened and then maybe they said well this is two stories after giant robots so we're not going to do that again but that whole him growing doesn't happen on screen he just just kind of staggers out and deflates and it's quite literal a deflation and and it's another it was a pretty gripping image for me i as a kid watching it. But that's why I asked about it. Cause that's, that one is another one that it's an addition that kind of makes for an exciting climax and is a bit comical and I kind of get it, but it was, it's also just, just very random and bizarre. Yes. Yeah. And,
1: yeah, I, I would have felt better about if, you know, he went into his ship and it exploded, which is what I was expecting to happen. You know, yeah. he just goes in to recharge and, Oh no, the doctors told Harry to make the self-destruct sequence start, you know? something like
0: that. And what's actually happened on screen is because Styer's feeding on energy, the energy fed on him. So it makes a lot more sense for this to be him deflating. Whereas blowing up his heart grew three sizes, something like that. <laughs> it's just it's like, what the hell? I did think that moment was just bizarre. I don't think it would have been, well, it might have been in an earlier script tray but only when they still thought they weren't doing it on location and I think that was right. always the case
2: yeah. right uh, that's it I really like what he does with the scavenger robots oh god I wish we could have seen it that way. Yeah, I think those are really cool.
0: Dalton, you've seen the first episode, so you know what the scavenger looks like on screen. What do you think of it?
1: Yeah, I've seen enough of the scavenger.
0: To last you a lifetime? <laughs> well,
1: uh, no, it, um, it, it, you know, out, out, maybe not so much within the city of Chicago, but further out, it just, it reminded me of like a, a transformer station or uh, oh. those just really tall. Those pylons. Yeah, and, just like the electrical yeah. pylon. I don't know, I, I felt like some of the description early on when they were being attacked by it with its tentacles, mm-hmm. it seemed very dynamic and there was just a lot more to it. So then seeing kind of the the boxy, <laughs> minimal version of it, I was like, eh, that doesn't seem like so much. But yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it never, as much as I love that thing, it never seems on screen like something you'd be afraid coming at you. <laughs> No. Whereas the scavengers, a uh, plural in the book, actually sound just deadly dangerous.
1: Yeah, kind of. Just thinking about the tentacles it just kind of reminded me of, oh, what were they called in The Matrix? The, oh, oh,
0: oh, those the snaky things.
1: This, yeah, tentacles, and they're floating, and they're quick, and they'll fuck you up. Um, I got a doctor. I got a doctor octopus sort of vibe. Oh, yeah. that. yeah, or that.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. and So that's one of the better changes, for sure. In fact, I'd say that's one of the best changes, because between that and the Sarah torture scene, I can't believe I'm saying that the Sarah torture scene is one of the best <laughs> things about this book. But it is because Steyer's constructed, essentially, a holodeck that takes mm-hmm. place in your head. And I love that concept.
2: I know one of the questions that Tony likes to ask, but we haven't asked is, "What are you thinking about the fourth Doctor at this point, Dalton?" Thank you. I was going to ask that.
1: <laughs> what am I thinking about the fourth Doctor? Um, I don't know. I'm getting Trouton vibes. I'm getting Second Doctor vibes just because yes. he, just because he he's got this like mischievous nature about him. He's always thinking. There's always in the back of his head something going on we didn't have the instance of the jelly babies here so there wasn't like the typical scene of him being shown thinking but yeah he he seems to be operating on two levels always Mm -hmm. whenever he was passed out and harry was worried about him and he woke back up he talks about it being a way of meditating or like shutting down yeah Um, just just that that idea that he's like totally screwing around with the people that are observing him. They always think he's dead. They always think he's a goner. And he's like, oh, no, I was just I was just resting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, it's very much a second Doctor and third Doctor trope, isn't it?
2: And then the whole Grey Malkin thing oh, um, where he, like, hallucinates a cat or dreams about a cat yeah. or something. And it's and his
0: hat. The cat in the hat. Yeah. It, I actually kind of like that a little bit.
2: I did, too. And... <laughs> And isn't Grey Malkin the witch's familiar in Macbeth or something? I believe it might be. Like, I come Grey Malkin or something. and But yeah. it, it, it is
0: odd that he should have to go there because he's trying to set up that MacGuffin because that piece of metal, that piece of metal that the Doctor's carrying around is actually what saves him from uh, Styre's beam on screen, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So he's got to come up with a use for it. And it does lead to the whole line of never clutter up your pockets, Harry and never throw anything away which is this (laughs) lovely reversal but he ends up throwing it away and it ends up being nothing else in the story at all whereas here it turns into everything that the story is about a way to get sarah out and a way to fall gently rather than to his death when he is (laughs) falling at the end it's just bizarre i'm glad you brought up uh second doctor vibes though Dalton, because when he first talks to the Golsec people, those first couple lines he says to them exactly, Trout. Someone asks him what's happened to the other astronauts, and he says, "Oh dear, I was so hoping for news of some dear friends of my own, but I fear I cannot help you at all." And that's that's Trout. That, yeah. mm-hmm. that doesn't sound like a Tom Baker line at all.
2: We lose the bit where he says, I just love clocks. And then he starts listening to clocks <laughs> yes. and they're like, shut up. And he continues like, cuckoo clocks. <laughs> yes.
1: I, I used to clocks. love that. <laughs> I love that line. Right, how long have they been in
0: deep freeze on Nerva? Oh, 10,000 years. <laughs> and you woke up before the others? Well, no, I'm a sort of traveling time expert. As you can see, Earth's been habitable for several thousand years. But they didn't wake up. Why? Clock stopped. Overslept. So here I am. Clock expert? Well, horologist actually. And chronometrist. I just love clocks. Atomic clocks. War quartz clocks.
1: Grandfather clocks. Shut up, Eric. Cuckoo clocks.
2: It's so funny the way he delivers I, it. And, and, we, and it's gone. And, but that's, again, a line that I don't think would work on the printed page as far as the comedy mm-hmm. as much. It 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 is with the timing and the delivery. So I can maybe forgive its omission, but yeah. But I think I think that was been the sort of thing that as a kid would have pissed me off. Where is the fucking cuckoo <laughs> pop <laughs> you know, yeah. This Ian Martyr doesn't know anything. I could have written a better novelization. <laughs> I mean that's kind of how you know as as you know, around fourth fifth grade, that's kind of how I treated the novelizations. Mm-hmm. And
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting because uh, at one point the doctor is very silly and and fun but at the same time he does have like a seriousness about him i've seen the newer series so i'm a little more familiar with those kind of representations of the doctor the fourth doctor is kind of you're starting to feel you know hartnell and Troughton and pertwee you're starting to get kind of more representation of of the previous incarnations of the doctor um, showing up to to form something totally new exactly one of the things that i love
2: about this story and again and it maybe it's more the tv story or the novelization but it comes across in the novelization and it's certainly fourth doctor and i think this is why doctor who inspired me in a way that as much as i liked other sci-fi and adventure shows not only is the doctor brave to the monster's But he he, he mocks them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's something we don't often see happening. Like, he just takes the wind out of their sails with a put-down. He knows how to antagonize... Steyer. And, and in a way, as, as a kid dealing with the bullies, um, there was an eighth grader at my school who was a year older than me and it was at my grade school. And he was kind of this cocky jerk. And a lot of the people were intimidated by him. And I just, I remember standing up to him and just kind of making fun of him and pointing out how, you know, you're actually being really, I forget what I said, but it was like, he was shredding his stuff, trying to be all alpha and everything. And I just mocked him and said, and kind of took a cue from Dr. He was, do you realize how ridiculous you look? (laughs) And that didn't necessarily work out for me in the short term, but because he he didn't like it, but it was kind of like that. You you don't have to fight back. You can just show that you're not scared that you just, you're you're so ridiculous. You know, why are you doing this? You know, I I don't, that, that sort of bemusement that the doctor displays Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to the villains in some ways. I think that's something that you don't often see in other adventure shows or like superheroes where they give the villains respect. There's a bit of a bitch, please (laughs) attitude that the doctor has. And I I, I love that.
0: Mm -hmm. Would you say that it comes across on the page here at all?
2: Yeah, Yeah. I think it does a little bit. When he's taunting Steyer, basically where he's saying, Yuru haven't fought the real warriors, and, and he's just appealing to that bullshit warrior code. And now I want to do a queer reading of this where... The Centaurans are a bunch of macho clones (laughs) in the late 70s, you know? And and it's like a bitchy queen
1: who just kind of like undoes all that performance, but. Steyr breathed, his limbs beginning to jerk in anticipation, at last. Why waste your time with riffraff? The doctor shouted, gesturing towards the three crewmen. These puny creatures you are so busy assessing are not warriors, Steyr. Why don't you fight someone your own size? The doctor smashed off his hat and brandished it with a proud flourish. I represent the true human warrior class, he challenged. Assess me if you dare. <laughs> Assess this. <laughs> you, Assess know, this. Oh, like, you know? <laughs> but, I love that. It's, 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 it's,
2: it's, 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 it's flippant. That's yes. the word I was looking for. The flippancy that the doctor shows the bad guys is one of the best things about the series. I've, I, I just love it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and that definitely comes from Tom Baker, and that's, that's certainly something that Ian Martyr, being such a good friend of his, would have been able to bring to the page, definitely. <sighs> Even though there's just so much that doesn't work, such as Ian Martyr, for some reason, has Clone confused a cyborg and makes the Santarans more cyborgish, which is something that one of our Goodreads reviewers actually says about it is a bit odd and there was one other thing that i thought was just really strange the doctor carrying scotch on him yeah i just yeah i could see the Pertwee doctor maybe carrying a flask of something around not the Tom Baker doctor who tends to ask for water whenever he's asking for uh, Ging, a
2: drink? Ginger beer. Ginger
0: beer, yeah, he's not a...
2: That's, that's Ian Martyr confusing Tom Baker with the doctors. He, with oh, that. God, <laughs> I'm sure of it,
0: because I'm sure that Tom Baker drank drank gallons of Glenn in his time. Uh, what else do we want to say about this book?
1: The idea of the boomerang orientator on the <laughs> <laughs> the TARDIS.
0: yes. I love that. I wish there had been something like that on screen at some point, but no. I will give Ian Martyr this. That ending is probably one of the more satisfying endings we've gotten in a novelization in a while, because uh, some of the endings we've been getting over the last 10 or 15 books have been just not where they should be, to be honest. Well, as we always do... Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.48, which is Lower than I thought it would be. I have edited these for length again. Sorry to the people who wrote them, but by all means, keep them coming. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, says six, seven, ten, or even twelve-part stories were originally intended to be watched one episode a week. So it's hardly surprising that they drag when we watch the whole story in one go, which makes it surprising that I found this two-parter a bit dull. The book improves the story a lot, but is undermined by the inclusion of the TARDIS, as I mentioned last time, which I find clunky and distracting, with getting rid of it at the end of the book in preparation for the following story even worse than the arrival at the start. My guess is that Martyr was told to include it, to reassure readers that it really was a Doctor Who story, but a line or two of added dialogue bemoaning its absence would have been just as effective without deviating from the story arc. There's another bit of clunkiness during the Doctor's Skype call with the Marshal. I love that. (laughs) I forgot to mention that. Uh, There's another bit of clunkiness during the Doctor's Skype call with the Marshal controller in the book with a corny who joke. Yes, the Marshal says something along the lines of who are you and the Doctor says you're close. And it's like, oh, for heaven's sake. And where did the whiskey come from? And what the hell are boomerang uh, orientators? One big mistake Marder seems to have made is confusing clone a cyborg. I knew I got these ideas from somewhere. The Santarans are a clone race. Nowhere but in this book do they have metal teeth or partly mechanical brains. The book isn't all bad. The fight between the Doctor and Steyer was improved by not having stuntman Terry Walsh doing most of it since Baker had broken his collarbone. And the terulean alloy fragment made it possible to increase the peril. Sarah Jane's torture is more uncomfortable in the book, more for the point-of-view aspect than the special effects, that's true. Harry's escape from the pit seems more onerous on the page, too. Yeah, that's the one part of the story that seemed to drag for me, Harry trying to get out of that pit. Effects are the reason scavenger robot has improved, though. The cheap and flimsy bit of tat on screen is actually quite menacing on the page. All in all... Not a bad effort, let down a little by some unnecessary tinkering. Yeah, unnecessary tinkering kind of describes it. Byron W. gives it four stars and says, this is a good book that tends to drag somewhat in the middle. Three main characters of the Doctor, Sarah Jane and Harry, are constantly separated, only to find each other, only to be separated yet again. You've read Doctor Who books before, right? (laughs) This happens (laughs) all the time. This does not cause the book to become boring, however, as the heroes do all have their own adventures within the book. The ending is suspenseful and enjoyable as well, two exclamation marks. This is the first Doctor Who novel that I have read, and I do plan on getting and reading more, two exclamation marks. I wonder if he ever did. And finally, Damon Haben gives it a very short four-star review and says, a great Ian Martyr book from one of my favorite seasons. Where else could you read of the Doctor's dreams about giant rats trying to eat into the TARDIS and a cat saving the day? Bonkers. <laughs> I tend to agree. So, <laughs> Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book and why?
1: I'm going to go about 3.5. The story itself is not the most amazing uh, piece of work. There's not a ton going on, but Ian Martyr does a really good job with setting the tone, getting the the environment right. There's some funny bits with the doctor, so I would say 3.5 for me.
0: Okay. And Trey?
2: I'd give it a four-star, because my criteria with these is always how well do they adapt what was on screen. And so it's a, what I would say the the epitome of a four-star novelization. Not like a wow, like a Donald Cotton or some of the Seventh Doctor stories when we eventually get to those. But it's, it's certainly a bit above the good average Terrence Dix. So a four-star, and I had given Ark and Space a 4.5, so this is a four-star for me.
0: Okay. Yeah. And I'd have to give it a 3.75 because he again expands on it in the same way, not to the same extent as Donald Clanton, as Trey said. It's still quite good. It's not nearly as good as the last book was, but then very few things could be. And he's doing what he can with the material. And I I've always thought that story was the most pedestrian filler in this whole story arc that we've got. And yet he, again, has made it into its own story, which is just really fascinating to the point that, Dalton, you thought it was a four-parter. And it feels like it actually has enough plot and incident to fill four parts now, rather than just being jammed into two. And even though there are times when I think of his flourishes as just as purple as Trey does, I can't help but like any book where you have a companion who's about to be tortured, and it says... Despite her apprehension, Sarah could not suppress a gasp of wonder at the unexpected beauty of the place. I love any book that allows a companion or a character to have the sort of distracted consciousness that human beings actually have. That they're not all focused on one thing, but even in the midst of just horror, they're able to appreciate the beauty of something. And even in the beauty of something, like when um, Harry finds the mutated fruit he's able to be fascinated by them. And those are both Ian Martyr editions, And I can't get enough of them. So 3.75. Well, thank you guys. Mm -hmm. And thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of Genesis of the Daleks. And I have a feeling that Trey and I will definitely be disagreeing on that one. In the meantime if you've liked what you've heard here like us on facebook at dr Who target book club podcast all in order of no spaces also feel free to follow us on twitter we're at dw target PC. or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice including spotify if all else fails you email me directly at upheardalik at gmail.com with target book club in the subject line so i don't ignore it thank you very much for listening stay safe and enjoy your travels Bye-bye. bye
1: bye bye